0: Well, hello there, and welcome to Consortio Day, a podcast about partnering with God to do sacred work. My name is John Chandler, and I am a spiritual director. And after 25 years in ministry and in nonprofit work, I've become a spiritual director with a focus really on walking alongside individuals and teams who also do sacred work, whether that's in uh, – paid ministry, or maybe it's a, a, a passion of theirs or working in a nonprofit, and walk alongside them to cultivate spiritual practices, soul care, and relational support. And so this podcast is just conversations around some of the same kind of things we get to talk about in spiritual direction as a, a way to just stir these conversations and hopefully be an encouragement to people like you. Uh, I want to tell you about a few things that are coming up before we get into today's interview. Uh, One of them is, I've mentioned before on the podcast, that I have some resources in the works. And I'm really excited to launch something this fall that I hope would be really beneficial for a, a handful of people. I am launching a small cohort called Practicing Examine. And the hope is that four to seven of us can get together every two weeks and just learn about the prayer of examine together and learn how to practice it alongside one another and hopefully build some friendships out of that that will go on even beyond this fall. So if that's interesting to you, if you think you would enjoy that, uh, I encourage you to go to examinecohort.com. That's E-X-A-M-E-N, to make sure you get examined spelled correctly, examinecohort.com, where you can read a little bit more about it or pre-register for the cohort there, or you can always contact me if you have other questions about it beforehand. Thanks so much for considering that, examinecohort.com. And also on my website, consortialday.com, you can sign up for my mailing list because alongside that cohort, I do have some other things in the works that I'm looking forward to rolling out here in the coming months. Also excited today to say that um, podcast is going to be ramping up. I've got several interviews already recorded or booked as people are getting back from summer vacations and we're all finding our rhythms again, so... Really looking forward over the next uh, month or two to getting on a much more regular schedule. I think I've said that before, but I, I mean, these, I already have recorded uh, some of these and have them scheduled. So, it, I, I, think, I think it'll be true this time. I think it'll be more true this time. So, if you're enjoying these conversations, I would love it if you could share them with others or uh, leave reviews on iTunes, of course, is always helpful. Uh, I learned that from my previous podcast, Sermon Smith, and I would appreciate it now. My guest today is Mike Goldsworthy and Mike is someone I have never met in person. You'll hear me mention to them this to him at the beginning. We've never met in person and yet I, out of people I only know digitally, I would, I told him, I think he's probably my closest digital friend. I just have a lot of appreciation and respect for him. Always learned from him when I have conversations with him. So I knew he was somebody who I want to invite to for you to hear from as well mike uh has he's going to talk about this a little bit in the podcast so i won't go into it a lot he's you know he had a Long career in ministry at the same church, but has lately had more of a passion uh, for helping connect churches in what he calls a post evangelical space. As, as he runs across churches and church leaders who are struggling to find their tribe, so to speak. And I think that's, I think he's used that language before, but that's certainly the language I would put to what he is up to. So I hope you'll look into that. He also has a podcast where he also has some great conversations that I'd encourage you to check out called Space for Faith. You can find almost everything he's doing at Mike Goldsworthy. Well, by Googling Mike Goldsworthy, you can find him on all the socials. And I think MikeGoldsworthy.com works as well. So here we are, today's conversation with Mike Goldsworthy. Well, Mike, I'm going to say this. You might be, and I think I've alluded to this talking to you, but you might be my favorite, most respected I would even say closest friend of all the people that I've never met in person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I love that. Meaning um, I've, just,
0: I've always had a, you know, I've always had some degree of affinity and connection with you. I, I knew your wife when she was in junior high, but we've never met in person, but here we go; right. We've done this a few times.
1: It's so fun. Um, no, there's a few folks. Allison thinks it's so weird because there's a few folks that she knows from like, former life, right? That, um, that I connect with still. So like you, and then, um, did you know, uh, Oh shoot. Now I'm forgetting his last name, Mitch, um,
0: Mitch McConnell.
1: No, <laughs> anyways, he, he was at Southeast also. And then he was, um, he worked there for a little while and now he works for Focus on the family, but he and I like went to a conference together and stayed in touch and whatever. And he, he and his wife came out. And um, and we went to dinner with them and Allison was like, it's so weird that this guy was friends with in high school that like you're friends with now. And we're hanging out with him because you're friends with him now. Like, right. I love that. Yeah, yeah.
0: But um, I, I mean, I think that's your nature, right? You're very much a connector, networker.
1: I do. I never used to think of myself as a networker, but like that's definitely, I've definitely noticed that um, that's true for me.
0: Yeah. 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 And it serves, it serves you well in terms of – and I mean, I guess I'll just follow that thread because it can lead into this first question I want to ask is tell us about what you do because you're kind of networking and connecting people.
1: <laughs> yeah, I am. And so, there's like in, – in the work that I do right now, um, I've had to think about it in two different ways or I've had to like almost sort of split it off in some ways that there's the work that I do that I get paid for and there's the work that I do that I feel called to. And there is definitely some overlap between them, right? But, um, but the stuff that I that I feel called to isn't really able to pay the bills right now. So, like I like to say that I connect, resource, and guide post evangelical churches and pastors. Yeah, and you know it looks like a whole bunch of different things, but, um, but yeah. So a part of that has been finding, like it really started with finding pastors uh, who kept saying to me, like. I feel like I'm all alone. I feel like I'm the only one doing this work. Yes. And yeah. as I just kept meeting people like that, I was like, well, can't we, can't we find ways for you all to like know each other and not feel alone? Cause I feel like your work is really similar and you all would resonate. Yeah. And yeah. So it just kind of turned into some more of that.
0: And I, I mean, I remember talking to you early in the early after your change in career, so to speak. And it wasn't so much a change in career as much as a departure from your prior career, which we can talk about that a little bit if you like, but yeah, but it's been fun to hear how your language around that is, and, and perhaps your hope and your vision for that is crystallized you know, into this thing that's not necessarily paying the bills yet, but you recognize as your calling.
1: Yeah, what- at least in this season, I feel like it's my calling. And it's still like, um, I. so I was pastoring a church that I was at for 19 years, and um and, and i always had much more of an affinity i think for church leaders like that's where i felt like a lot mm. of resonance and yeah uh, and even like i used um my church and not used in a negative way but I, it was a it was a way for me it became a vehicle for me to be able to do work with church leaders we did church planting stuff in the city did a bunch of sure. uh, connections whatever um but always had a resonance in that space and found myself with when I stepped out of the local church work, found myself with like a gravitational pull towards uh, other pastors and church leaders and turned into like, in some ways like pastoring pastors.
0: I mean, briefly tell us what, what's the other work you're doing?
1: Well, the other work I'm doing largely fits a similar sort of stream. Like it is largely connecting resourcing And guiding folks. And a lot of them are church leaders and churches and nonprofits and nonprofit leaders. It's just um, a wider stream of that. I would say like, I feel a particular resonance towards um, towards what's happening in response to the white evangelical church and the new things that are emerging out of that. And um, that aren't emerging just as a response to, but that are emerging out of a vision for something new, um, different, um, uh, so, so like, that's where like my heart beats faster when I connect in those spaces. But I definitely like what pays the bills are churches that are more established organizations that are more established that aren't yeah. sort yeah. of innovators or, um, early adopters on a thing that's sort of building and growing. So, um, so, and I do like, I don't, I don't feel like I just use them to pay the bills. Like I, I, I don't work with a church or an organization or a leader that I can't in some sort of way find interesting or get excited about.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so, tracing back a little bit, because I, I thought it might be helpful to tease this out, because it might have perked somebody's ears and I realized I moved on from it. But talk about this term you used, post-evangelical. Like, do you have definition around that? Or how do you find that people are coalescing around that term?
1: Yeah. I mean, people are coalescing around it just by self-defining it. And we've done a little bit of work on defining it out a bit. I mean, we see it as a, um well, and I should say David Gashi, ethicist David Gashi, he's got a book called After Evangelicalism, where I think mm-hmm. he does some good work teasing this out. But in like sort of practical boots on the ground, seeing this happen in churches, we... We've been recognizing it as a sort of response to largely white evangelicalism, to people that um, have essentially seen it corrupted, that it's been corrupted by its integration in politics and its vision of God being far too narrow. And then post-evangelical as opposed to ex-evangelical. Ex-evangelicals, I would say, are responding to that as well, sure. but are kind of the like F it, burn it all down. Yeah. I'm kind of done. Like, and, um, and I totally understand that response. I would say that post evangelicals are trying to build something new and they're building something new in ways where they're trying to not necessarily, uh, trade being a fundamentalist conservative to become a fundamentalist progressive. Right. Um, so, trying to say, like, justice matters, but we're also not going to create a new purity culture around justice. So you're walking this, like, fine line there, trying to say, like, uh, the church, the Christian faith is an inherited faith, so we don't just make this thing up. And at the same time, we have room for, like, new theological visions and new liturgies and trying to reimagine what does this faith look like in our time and our place. And so, trying to trying to hold those two tensions together um i'd say that it's very like in a lot of ways hyper local and um so even like the work that you did previously with in Austin i think like my understanding of it was pretty hyper local and i think that's what's happening here in some ways to a uh, um uh, uh it's one of the things i'm trying to help push against a little bit that there's a miss sometimes of a larger global church focus because you become so locally focused cuz um, you, uh, there's some response to the kind of trying to build a regional mega church that has no sort of like, uh, incarnational value of the place where it is that you could just pick it up and put it in any city USA and it would, sure. it would do the same thing. Right. And so there's a, there's a move towards like, okay, well, what does it look like to, to smell, touch, taste, to feel like the place where we actually are? Um, yeah. So those are, those are some of the things.
0: And uh, and, uh, another broad question, and then I want to, you know, start to lean in on, you know, your own personal journey a little more. But, and I'm asking this question only because you and I have talked about it a little bit. But what, how are you seeing in this movement, how, how are you seeing spiritual formation come into play? Like, is there a common thread of spiritual formation that you're seeing through some of these conversations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't... A spiritual formation is definitely a significant conversation that's here. Um, it's definitely one of the things there's, um, there has been a loss of formation right in the like, and I say this as somebody who was obviously like Ray, I was raised in white evangelical culture. We wouldn't have called ourselves evangelicals, but we were very influenced mm-hmm. by the larger cultural um, experience of that and who led a white evangelical mega church. So, like, I've, I, like, I'm not somebody who's sitting outside and I still feel like, like, I still claim a lot of that sort of stuff. But anyways, we feel like there has been such a lack of formation that's happened there. We're seeing it all sort of play out. And a lot of us have obviously, I know that you have been talking about this for a long time. So in this space, I'm definitely seeing an emphasis on like, even talking about liturgy as this, like, idea that the way what we do in our worship forms us and in what ways are we being formed in the way that we do our worship and that doesn't mean that we need to have our worship feel like 18th century whatever but sure it does sure. mean that like yeah the rhythm and flow of that matters it means grabbing a hold of like I, I don't think it's uncommon for me talking to pastors in this space for every every other one every third to have a spiritual director. Which uh, I would say if I was saying that in the spaces that I was in before, maybe every 20, 30, yeah. 40, yeah. and many of them would know what a director was, right? Or like um, not being afraid of grabbing a hold of like things that are more aesthetic um, and utilizing stuff like that. as a, So prayer icons, I don't think is uncommon sometimes in this space and even creating new icons, um, things like I use a prayer rope and prayer beads and that's something that I don't think would have been a part of my experience years ago. And so Perhaps there's even questioned, like, right?
0: What's that? Perhaps even questioned.
1: Yeah. 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 It would have been yeah, super yeah. skeptical. I was preaching in a post evangelical church recently and I had my prayer bracelet on and pulled it off and talked about it at one moment. And I had this realization as I was doing it where I was like, oh, there's plenty of places where I could be, where I if I did this, that there would be tons of skepticism towards me in this. And there's just no, there's no question about it. So there's this like room for like, not just the depth and breadth of like different Christian traditions, but even like traditions beyond Christian traditions and saying like, okay, uh, like uh, uh, are there ways in which those things can be helpful in our formation?
0: And yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk a little bit about your own, your own journey. Because one of the things I've, I don't feel like you, I don't feel like you, you know, prop this up and talk about yourself this way that much. I've seen allusion to it, but I feel like from having enough conversations with you, there's a lot of, you're a smart, intelligent guy. And so, there's a lot of depth there. But more so, I'm interested in leaning in on, I, I feel like there's a lot of depth in your maturity. And hmm. that doesn't just happen for somebody who's a mega church pastor. Surprise, surprise. But... That that had to be a journey and a process for you. So I wonder what what has your own journey looked like? What's what's brought you to this place, at least from my never met you in person, respect and <laughs> friendship seems to have some depth to it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate you um saying that it's really kind. And I do think like for the last several years, uh, part of my journey has been like I am I'm a wannabe mystic in a lot of ways. And and not just a wannabe mystic, but a super failed one as well. But I feel like my journey has moved me in that direction. And, um, I, I remember I was, I was preaching a sermon at my church and I would talk about, I would often talk about my days in college and you and I both went to the same undergrad and I lived in the dorms and it was like, it's a small Christian college and it was like being in, um, it was like being in summer camp. Like all the time that it was like, yeah, you're at this Christian summer camp all the time. And I had a significant period of growth during that time. Like I really grew a lot. And so I was preaching in the sermon and I said something about, and it was a phrase I would use a lot that I would say like, oh, college was the, was the time of my greatest spiritual growth. And I, I realized like I've gotten further and further from college and I keep saying that And it really started to bother me that like I was getting so removed from what I had experienced as my greatest time of growth. So I started to like ask questions about like, well, what would it look like for me to be able to say that today for me to be able to say like, well, today is my greatest time of growth. And a friend of mine, I was talking to him about it and he's like, hey, you should talk to, and I didn't know much about spiritual directors at the time, but he said, you should talk to um, my spiritual director. Her name's Cheryl. She understands the complexities of large church. I had had some interactions with some spiritual directors actually locally that were a part of a local program that really had turned me off um, hmm, to them, and it turned me off even to um, them understanding the work of large churches. Yeah, and um, and she had been really involved in a large church and had been instrumental in some work. Anyway, so so he's like, I think you should connect with her. I think like she'd be a good person for you to have a conversation with this about. So I connected with her and, and ended up through that, like starting to see her on a regular basis. And, um, and she and I fought a lot, actually, (laughs) she would, it took me, it took months of, of work with her for me to be open to like a practice, like centering prayer. Huh? Um, and she had to, like, I had to become convinced that it wasn't just some woohoo sort of thing and that it was like, and I had always like, I was of the, like, I'd always been told um, Eastern meditation is about emptying your mind, right? And Christian meditation is about what you fill your mind with. And so here she is like talking to me about this kind of prayer where I'm emptying myself and I'm like, Oh hell no. Like that's the stuff I've always been told to avoid and she just slowly, thoughtfully, like, helped me to, like, work through it biblically, um, and even, like, sh- like having me read a bunch of folks. Like, she figured out, oh, the way to Mike, the, the way to get to Mike to open himself up experientially is that he has to, f- we have to first go through intellectually. Sure. So, she did that. Read work. these
0: seven books, Mike.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what it was. She would send me home with chapters of stuff. And, yeah. um and it was actually, it was actually Cynthia Bourgeau's work that I think like opened me up probably most to uh, moving that direction. Um Yeah. So, I mean, I think m- my work with my director then really started like helping me feel more centered and grounded and to encounter God in new and different ways, which just led me on all these different paths, all these different sort of journeys that opened me up, like even sort of figuring out what made sense and worked for me. Um Sure. Like one of my experiences was I was going on a I was going on a sabbatical my church graciously had given me a sabbatical hmm. and I was uh the beginning of it was it was like a I always get the number wrong it was like a 23 25 day road trip by myself um a solitude trip where I,
0: So wait, it wasn't just your church that was gracious, it was also Allison. It, that was, it was also Allison.
1: <laughs> uh yeah. Yeah. It was very, it was very gracious on her part. And like the first, I want to say like five days of it, I was completely, I had no contact with anybody. So, um, so I'm heading out the very first day of the trip and I'm driving out to the Grand Canyon. I went out uh, like camping and hiking and stuff around the Western yeah. US. and I'm headed out to the Grand Canyon and I'm just, I'm feeling anxious about it. And I was feeling like, um, this wasn't feeling good. And I realized what had happened was I'd gone to my director and had asked her to help me like plan out what my um, time would look like. And we had decided like I would have this, this prayer pattern. I would do this prayer, certain kind of prayer in the morning, afternoon, evening, every day. And I, as I was driving out there, I was just dreading it. And mm. I had this realization that I was like, oh, nobody told me I need to do this prayer pattern. She didn't tell me I need to do this prayer pattern. I had this expectation that this is what it's supposed to look like. I'm supposed to have something like this. And I went to her and asked her to do that, but it was completely self-imposed and self-created. And and so I realized this as I'm driving on the the drive out there and, um, and just kind of said to myself, like, I'm not going to do anything that I'm doing out of perceived expectations over these next several months. Cause I had felt like a lot of my life, a lot of my work and the integration of the two had been around doing perceived expectations. Hmm. And, and I began to realize like, Oh, I'm like going, I'm doing this, um, this personal journey, uh, that includes these disciplines. But what I'm doing is all based off of perceived expectations, not off of like, what actually is most life giving for me and what's actually most helpful. And so that, yeah. um, that became this really significant turning point for me. So I don't, I don't know. Does that help give a little, a couple of handholds? I don't know if
0: that's well, exactly sure, what yeah. you're asking. Because it, 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 I mean, if I'm to, if I were to perhaps oversimplify what you're saying, it, it's, it's a subtle, but very fairly significant shift to transition from your spiritual practices are a burden or an expectation, you know, a requirement to, Something that is inviting, something that is life giving and that there's so much freedom then in determining what practices are going to work best for me in this immediate season. Right. Yep. Yep. Did I say yeah. that? Did I capture that?
1: No, I think that's right. And I think like, so for me, that was this turning point of realizing that mm-hmm. and of realizing like, um, there's a phrase. That um, that Dallas Willard would talk about with disciplines that at that point started to click for me maybe in different ways where he says something to the effect of like I know this isn't an exact quote it, he says a um, spiritual discipline is anything that you do by direct effort that opens you up for God's Spirit to do in your life what you can't do by direct effort and it was that anything that began to realize like oh it um, I I definitely, and even as I was embarking on this like new journey had still sort of categorized disciplines within this sort of like narrow focus and that like movement of a shift of like intention, um, opened me up in new and different ways to like my most meaningful experiences would be these like 16 mile hikes that I would take on my own where, um, I did not set out to have like intentional, Prayer experiences on it, but I would say were some of the most um meaningful prayer experiences that I've probably ever had would happen on those where it just is like where you're out for hours on your own and like your mind can sort of settle and move into places that it couldn't have otherwise, yeah. and then you know it just keeps going and you just keep unearthing these things that you didn't realize you needed to unearth, and, and that would have never happened for me had I done my my sort of what I thought I needed to do,
0: yeah. Did, did you have this love of nature um, and being in the outdoors and all that bef- before, and then your your spiritual formation, your own spiritual journey intersected with that? Or did that come out of you trying to find new practices?
1: Uh, I would say it was a little of both. I definitely had it before, but yeah. I would say that those experiences accelerated it in a way where it was like, oh, I actually need this in a way I didn't know I needed it.
0: Yeah. I, it's interesting to me how often these converse, this thread of conversation keeps coming up both here on the podcast, people talking about walks or getting out in nature or whatever, um, and even in my spiritual direction <laughs> You know, as I'm meeting with people. And I'm wondering, like, am I projecting this on or is there yeah. a really important theme? Because I don't feel like I'm projecting it on. It feels the like it's nature. a really important theme that keeps emerging. Yeah, like get, getting out disengaging, getting away, you know, even as simple as, you know, a 30 minute walk in the morning, but also like a, you know, a 16 hour hike. I mean, yeah. or a 16 mile hike. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. So we like, um, I'm just, uh, I was telling you earlier, I'm just coming out of COVID. And so we had quarantined me in our house and the way that our house is situated, we're in this 1950s ranch style house in um, Southern California. So every single room opens to the outside. So I was quarantined in our bedroom, which could open to the outside. And one of the ways that like, I could like hang out with my family was, you know, to be outside in our little courtyard. And so every morning for breakfast, um, Allison and I would go out and we would have our coffee and breakfast and read our books and stuff outside, which we would normally do in, in our living room and realize like, why are we not doing this regularly? So, (laughs) so yeah, so that's become one of our things is like, um, is every morning, like, we're like, we're gonna have our coffee outside. We live in Southern California and like why are we not why are we not doing this as just like just getting outside is so it yeah, even in the midst of a city, it's just there's something so significant.
0: Yeah. So so where like how far into your ministry, so to speak, did you begin this journey with a spiritual director, begin this shifting towards, you know, embracing centering prayer and all these other wacky ideas yeah i think
1: that probably would have been around 2015 ish somewhere around there so i'd been at that church then for probably 14 15 years at that point uh, And
0: how did that how did that impact your ministry
1: oh i mean it messed me up in some ways it like i definitely was already <laughs> i i was seen with skepticism by a, a fair number of folks in the church already and then when i come back and i'm uh talking in ways that are a bit more contemplative i'm uh, introducing some kinds of spiritual practices into things there i mean there's definitely um yeah it definitely created some skepticism i didn't know how to bring like my staff and team and leaders all on the journey with me so i would say like mm-hmm we had people who just naturally resonated with that and kind of came along with me and people who had like, if I had understood better how to bring them along probably could have, and then definitely people that would have never come along, but it definitely created some fissures in spaces as a result of that. And, and not just in terms of like, um, uh, doing contemplative practices or whatever, but a movement from being more closed to being more open and, um, like, I feel like that's what my movement has been. And contemplative practices are one of the vehicles that have helped me to move in that direction.
0: Yeah. And so, yeah. And so I'd be curious then, after you came back from that sabbatical and all that, and continued to lean in more on these practices through the course of your week, I wonder what those look like. And the reason I ask that is, you know, because I said earlier, Spiritual formation doesn't just happen for a megachurch pastor or for any pastor. And I don't even mean that as a cynical statement. I just know that I've worked in large churches and small churches, and there's it's very easy to let your work be your quote-unquote spirituality. And yeah. so, I, w- I wonder what it looked like then for you to have this renewal of your own journey and sustain that through yeah, yeah, yeah. day-to-day
1: Um, so really practically, I, um, my spiritual director is about two hours from me. I'm in Hmm. long beach, California. She's in San Diego.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, I would go down and I would go down during a work day once Mm -hmm. a month to spend a few hours with her. And, um, and I saw that drive down. I did my drive down and my drive back in silence. Hmm. And so for me, it was like a spiritual retreat day, even though like I wasn't in a retreat center or whatever. Right. Like, so like that was built in once a month. I had things where four times a year, I would do an overnight um, uh, solo retreat. And so just a one night deal somewhere. But, and I could do that. Like, I mean, I think like, yeah, it's, it, it can be hard for pastors. It also can be easier, honestly, for pastors than sure people with a nine to five job because yes, like, yeah. I can justify to my job that this is a part of my job for me to do this. And I can do this on a Wednesday, Thursday. I don't have to go do it on a Saturday, Sunday or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, So I could integrate it into things like that. I would like riding my bike. I rode my bike to work a minimum of one day a week. And um, I would say that like, I saw that as a part of it reading. How long was that ride? It's uh, just a few miles. And I had this little like commuter bike that I would take and, Um, and then one day a week I would try to ride somewhere where I get an asahi bowl for breakfast. And so I would go do that and I would read and then go there. And, um, and, uh, one of my, one of my practices for a long time has been to have long, slow mornings. And by that, I mean like I have a minimum of two hours before I do anything. So it's coffee, reading breakfast. And, um, and so still like was able to do that in that season. Um and so if I had you know I I could set when my meetings would start and so I you know wouldn't yeah. take meetings before certain times a day, yeah. um yeah so I mean I think uh, oh and before like one of the ways I was using centering prayer during that time was on Sunday mornings before I would I would get into my office and I would um uh I would go through my sermon like I have like a sermon prep ritual that I'll do. But before I would go preach, I'd finish prepping the sermon and then I would do a centering prayer practice and wouldn't touch the sermon again. And it was this way of Hmm. like, not like I would find myself so hyper engaged in what I was preaching that I needed this thing where I was like, I didn't want to show up unrehearsed and like, I need, like I wanted to do my job well. And at the same time, I wanted to have the right kind of detachment from it. And so I found like I would use my morning to like do my normal prep work and then make sure that I had enough time where I would do a a, um, centering practice where I would, that would help me to show up more fully present with the people of the church and even in the sermon than if I was just, you know, sitting with it in my head the whole time.
0: And so I I ask all that because I I mean, I think it's helpful for anybody who's in that kind of role, but. I'm also curious now, you've been away from your church for three years, maybe four?
1: Yeah, th- it's been, yeah, three years actually this right now.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, so I wonder what these kinds of things look for you now where you don't have, I assume you're traveling more, you don't have the same daily or weekly rhythms, you know, and so, in some ways that can be more challenging and you don't have... I would imagine you don't have or feel the same burden of responsibility or accountability because of your role to sustain these things. So I wonder what it looks like for you now and how it feels different.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, it definitely feels different at the the very least. And it's like one of the ways that I've described this season um, is that I always felt like I had guardrails up. And they were self-imposed guardrails in a lot of ways. Like a lot of my stuff was my own, like imposing things that I thought were expectations and they were expectations, but nobody was making me do them or making me think them. And so I always had guardrails up about like what I could, you know, uh, if I was going to think about something like it, you know, we'd always say in the church things like, you know, you want to pursue truth wherever it leads you. And what we meant by that was you want to pursue truth wherever it leads you, as long as you arrive at one of these three answers. Right, Like right. those were like sort of my guardrails or <laughs> yeah. even like these kinds of practices or whatever sorts of things. Right. And I felt like one of the things that happened for me when I stepped out of that role was the guardrails could come off and I could have more freedom of exploration and I could allow myself to do that. Um, I could figure out, yeah, what was meaningful and helpful and whatever. So like long, slow mornings has been, I would say a staple for me. Like yeah. I, I need that. I try not to um, take many morning meetings um, and I have for the most part, a lot of control over my calendar, not complete control,
0: but enough that I can usually make that happen. It's trickier um, when you're on the West coast though, right? Cause you want to have a long slow morning. And then by the time you're done, it's 1 PM. If you're meeting with somebody on the East so coast, that's a hundred percent true.
1: So I, I yeah. allow myself a couple of days a week where, where I'll do earlier morning deals for that very reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's been super significant. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't do like uh, a contemplative prayer practice. I don't do one every day. I try mm-hmm. to do one three times a week and I'll kind of vary what they are. Um, and it's kind of like, um, I think of different practices for me as like uh, different, I don't, I need to think of a better metaphor than this, but like, I think of them as like quivers that I've got, like kind of in my, and I just yeah. kind of like, what one do I need right now? And I sort of like pull it out. Yeah. And, um, and I would say most often it ends up as like practices that are around, uh, centering prayer is always a staple examine is always a staple and, uh, lectio is always a staple like it yeah. will often come back to one of those. Um, I never would have, like, I use, I use prayer beads a lot for, with breath prayers. And, um, it started with, I got, um, I got a prayer rope from, um, um, uh, the Greek Orthodox church and used that for a while. And then recently got this uh, prayer bead bracelet that I use, but I use that and breath prayers. I would say is probably the most consistent regular thing that I do. Um, Things like I, I picked up uh, you and I talking right now, I've got this candle and I have all these like thin prayer candles. They burn for 50 minutes. And every huh. time I'm on conversation with somebody on zoom, I found one of the things that was happening over like, these video conversations was, it was really easy for me to do like seven things while I was talking with somebody. Right. Um, and to not be fully present. And so I, I started buying prayer candles and I was like, every time I'm on a conversation, I'm going to light one of these as this like visual reminder of like the space that I'm in is holy. And yeah. the conversation we're having is holy and sacred and I need to treat it as holy and sacred. So like, I think that's become a really significant practice for me. um, Oh, yeah. I mean, I still do like outside things. It's actually become harder to do overnight trips that are for, um, for just for me doing a solo trip because I travel a lot more. I I have a more guilt from being away from home more. I try to, sure. so I've had to figure out different things where like, um, I will do, I'll block out an afternoon and just won't take any meetings and I'll ride my bike to the park and I'll spend a couple of hours at the park um, yeah. doing what I would have done overnight. So I, it, it's become something that instead of it being this longer period of time is like, okay, how do I take what I would have done there and sort of like do a piece of it?
0: Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the simplicity of the choice you made with a candle for zoom calls. Um, because I, I had a similar experience. I mean, you can see it. This is obviously a podcast. So can camp, but right there, that table, it's basically like an Ikea cart where I flipped over the top one and then I attached wood to it. And part of that wood slides over like it's on rails point being, I realized, and mostly it's from like my spiritual formation, like cohorts where I was being trained and, and other stuff. I do not pay attention. Well, when I'm on a zoom call with my laptop in my lap, you know? And so I did that so I could slide it in front of me. And so I could, participate in the call without having to touch my computer at all. And mm. that's, you know, not that's what I use when I'm in spiritual direction, but it's that small little things like that. Small little cues can be really helpful. You know, I, I didn't consider a candle like that, but it's, I, I appreciate your thoughtfulness to say, how can I be more intentional, you know, about being present and being connecting in this space where I'm not physically present. Like how can I create physical presence for myself? I don't know how much you've talked about this publicly. And if you're not, if you don't want to lean in on this question, I can even edit it out. But I'm curious how much you would say, and to the degree of uh, detail you want to go into, is fine. Um, I'm curious how much you would say ultimately your practices and your new intentional movement of formation led to your change in. I don't want to say career, but sure. But clarity of calling, maybe. How do you feel like you know? How much correlation do you think there is there?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I I don't mind talking about anything. Um, there's probably definitely some overlap. So one of the things though that I did discover, I um, so I became senior pastor of this mega church at 29 years old. Yeah, um, which was stupid in a lot of ways. And, um,
0: and you were there before as a youth pastor. I, I was right? there before. So yeah, I'd, yeah.
1: I'd kind of like changed roles along the way, and um, went through a two-year transition. We had had a, a senior pastor had been senior pastor for thirty years, and he went through. Uh, we went through two years where he was moving towards retirement. I moved into his role, and then um, at yeah, I was twenty-nine when um, when he fully retired, and I took over. And. Um, I can find journals from just a few months after that, where I was essentially like, what the hell am I doing? I got to get out of this. Um, yeah. So pretty early on. And we, I would say the entire time I was a lead pastor, we wrestled with it. I never wanted to be a lead pastor. That was never like, Mm -hmm. I was never a person who was like, that's what I'm trying to do and become, but felt like, um, I felt like we had gone through a season where we felt like we felt the spirit stirring in us and saying like, there's something new and next and we thought it was somewhere else ended up things happened at the church where it kind of opened up for us. And we felt like, okay, maybe this is the new and next thing. And we, as you and Allison, me Allison. and Allison, okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, we try really hard. We really do try hard to have an egalitarian marriage. And a part of that looks like us both like on major decisions getting on the same sure. page. And yeah. so, um, so, yeah, we had felt like that was the new and next and I felt unsettled in it really for almost the whole time. In some ways, there's just parts of it that were like, I st- didn't want to run an organization. Like that's just mm. not my wiring and my makeup. And I became a CEO of a multi-million dollar organization. Sure. And, um, and there's a lot of stuff that comes with that. So there's always definitely like a pull away from that. And we had looked at other, Roles, we almost took some other jobs at some other churches that would have afforded me to be able to do some things without having to be in that kind of role. And for various reasons, none of them were right. And I would say though, what happened with this movement? So that, that all led me to my sabbatical that I took and, and told the elders, like, I might be done and, but maybe not. And the sabbatical was a time of like, me getting some rest, reorging some things in the church and coming back with some new direction. And I came back from that and told them, said, I think I have five years or less left in this role. Yeah, And I would say what happened through these practices was a continual movement of clarity of like, in fact, even the language that I used with my church when I stepped out, because I didn't have like a, I didn't know what I was doing next. So I'm leaving, right? Like I'm leaving right. The, this role at this place that I've been for a long time and like, what are, what are you doing? And I said um, like, I can't maintain a healthy soul while I continue in this role. Like it just wasn't working. And um, I had a lot of clarity around that, that like, Oh, that there's this, like, I, I don't like who I am and who I continually become in this role. And I would say the, those practices and that sort of journey helped to clarify that part of it for me.
0: Yeah. And then um, I just lost the question I was going to ask about that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You're good. Sorry. I rambled a bit.
0: No, not at all. Not at all. I I mean, I I really appreciate that. So I I guess like even when you talk about clarity, then um, what do you think gave you the final bit of courage to say, I need to move on to the next thing, even though I don't know what it is yet?
1: Yeah. I don't know that I could point to one thing. So yeah. like, and even if I were to, I think would probably be disingenuous to, mm. to actually what happened. I mean, so the reality of what happened was, I don't know if I have, I'm trying to think if I've talked about this publicly or not, but regardless, it's, it's fine to talk about. I, I was having a biannual review with the chair and vice chair of our elder board and, and it was a fine review. Like it was, we would do it twice a year and, and everything was fine in it. And the vice chair asked me a question at the end of the review. I don't even remember what the question was. But I just had this like, I had this breakdown. And I started weeping. Hmm. And I said I said to them, um, I think I need to be done sooner rather than later. Yeah. And it was just this visceral thing that my body had been holding in a way that I didn't realize was at the... Um, at, at, fully at where it was at and something about what happened in that moment, like um, unleashed it. And so I don't know that it was courage. It was just kind of like, I said this thing and then, um, and then like, later sounds kind of courageous. Well, <laughs> I mean, later it was like, Oh crap. Yeah. I think I've just like started the wheels in motion for me having to leave And it wasn't strategic or intentional. It was just like um, an intuitive, visceral sort of like thing that happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a tangible physical release when you – it's almost like admitting something that you intuitively know is true, but you have not tangibly stated, I would say. I mean, I've had that experience with others, maybe with myself. I'm not sure, but Yeah,
1: yeah. And even like one of the confirmations of it was on the we took we took a while to to like try and do it well for the church. But one of the confirmations of it was on the on the morning that I announced to the church that that I'd be stepping out. Um, came home that day, and usually like my Sunday ritual was I come home and I take a nap.
0: Yeah,
1: um, it's just beat after preaching a few times and sure. all of that comes with that. And that day, like um, I wasn't tired. And Allison says to me, she goes. You just seem a bit giddy today, huh. and it was like, "Oh, there' was this like existential weight that was lifted today, and I just didn't realize how heavy it had been,
0: yeah, well, I have a new wrap up question <laughs> that so this is, I didn't even send this to you All right. um because it literally came to me this morning, um but when I want to start asking so <laughs> welcome, I like it um I'm curious. You know, based on the trajectory you're on, um, who who do you hope you are in 10 years? Oh, gosh. That's a really good question.
1: I mean, I... uh... I think like Eugene Peterson has been so um, from afar. I never got to spend time with him. Yeah. But from afar has been really, really um, influential for me the last several years. Yeah. And I think a lot about um, his years living at the lake in Montana where he is um, receiving people and investing in people where he's kind of living his life with his wife in these like slow intentional rhythms where um, he's like investing in the things and people that he wants to invest in. And, um, and that like his like he's, he's largely done most of his writing, although he does do some writing there, but he's largely done a lot of that. And, it seems to me like that that's a season for him of like kind of reaping the, um, the benefits of what he's sown and not reaping the benefits of like, I get to go off now and retire and not deal with people, but reaping the benefits of like, now I get to like, um, just be with people and I get to, um, and I don't know, 10 years might be a little early for that for me, but like, that's the sort of trajectory I'd like to be moving towards.
0: Do you feel like you're, do you feel like you're on the right pathway towards that now?
1: I think in a lot of ways, I think the thing, like one of the things that I've realized, and you know this better than I do, cause you've been at some of this kind of stuff longer than me, but is, um, largely my work is freelance work now. Yeah. And, um, and define the, the, the reality of the practicality of the, f- of finances sets up things like that. Yes. um, and so otherwise it's like a hope and a dream unless you, so I think like that's the barrier that I'm working on trying to figure out like how to, how do you do that? Right. Like Eugene Peterson isn't getting to do that without the message. Right. Um, yeah. And so trying to figure out like what, yeah. H- how do you deal with that? How do I, in my situation or all my stuff do that in a way to set myself up, to be able to do that, to be able to make those kinds of contributions because otherwise, um, I'm just going to be doing things to keep my head above water. And that won't, right? You think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and yes, yeah. you're not going to engage in that higher level kind of work if you're just trying to pay the bills. So I think there's this real practical financial reality that I think is is probably the, the biggest thing that I need to figure out. But in a lot of other ways, I feel like I've been headed in that trajectory.
0: Yeah. So I think you just announced you're working on your own new Bible translation. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's what you got to do. What no? What you got to do is you got to um, write some worship songs. Like if you um, can get one or two worship songs that's being sung, <laughs> and it's just like the main, like you're set. Like uh, I mean, that's that's the secret in the uh, in <laughs> in the Christian spaces. That's that's how you make a lot of money.
0: Yeah, because those are those are more reproducible than Bible translations. So
1: yeah. And every single time, every single time your church sings one of those songs, you're getting you're getting paid.
0: Hmm. Well, Mike, um, why don't you tell everyone a little bit? You have a fantastic podcast. I hope you'll tell people about that is no longer called Mike's podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but it was good when it was called Mike's podcast. It's yeah. still good. But and and for people who are interested in connecting with, you know, some of the post evangelical stuff, how how can people? hear what you're up to, connect with some of the stuff you're doing.
1: Yeah. Thanks, man. I, I am terrible at putting stuff out. I need to be better at these things. So right now uh, my podcast is called space for faith, or if you just type in Mike Goldsworthy into any podcast app, you, it should pop up. And yeah, we're having conversations uh, around like, um, was it, what does it look like to be the church? We're re, re- reimagining the church in our time and our place and trying to think about that so those are the kinds of conversations we're trying to have there and then dot uh, Goldsworthycom is my website and find me on the Twitter and on the Instagram and things like that from there and yeah we've got a gathering coming up in October of post-evangelical pastors and church leaders would love to have you there and that's that's at myke Um, yeah I think that's I'm, I'm Mike Goldsworthy or M Goldsworthy on on all the social medias
0: all the tweets. What's Goldsworthy mean? What's the background of that name? That
1: is a good question. I don't fully know. I mean, it's I'm European mutt, so it's yeah. um it's definitely strongly English, but I think it's got some other persuasions.
0: It's just fun that you can say, you can find me at Mike Goldsworthy, not have to spell out your last name. It's memorable, works well for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a little long. It, it messes some things up, so but yeah, it'll work.
0: It, it works. It works. Well, Mike, I, yeah. thank you so much. I mean, it, this is everything I thought and hoped it would be. And I appreciate you sharing, sharing how your story has been shaped and framed by your how, how – I'll put it this way. How your outer journey has been framed and shaped by your inner journey. I think Ooh. it's really important. Yeah. yeah that, was, that was a nice – New nice, tagline. New tagline. That was nice work. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: Thanks for having me, John. Genuinely, yep. you're a gift. I'm really glad that we have – been connecting over the last several years and it's fun to get to watch you and your journey. And um, you're an old school podcaster. Like you were one of the first folks doing this stuff regularly. So it's a gift to get to be with, you know, with the goat.
0: (laughs) That's uh, far too kind. Yeah. I think you were my second interview ever on sermon Smith. I remember right. Second or third. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks Mike. Thanks John. Thanks again for listening. And as I mentioned before, I hope you'll uh, take a look at examinecohort.com and looking for four to seven people to help me kick off this new cohort idea I have. And I think the prayer of examine could be very meaningful for you. I know it's been one of my most important spiritual practices in the last few years. Thanks, friends.